Hello, filmmakers. You're very welcome to another episode of FNI Rap Chat with me and myself, Paul Webster. Uh, riding solo today, uh, Paul Butler Lennox will be back again soon. Don't worry. Um, so, yeah, today we have Carmel Winters. Um, really, really amazing conversation. Uh, it was so good to have her on the show. Uh, someone we wanted to have on the show for a long time. Um, she lives down in uh, West Cork and was a little bit you know it's tricky we didn't want to do this one over the phone so it's great to have her here uh, in person um i met carmel at a festival years ago and she was her enthusiasm was so infectious and she's so encouraging and she's just a, an amazing person and her film is out in cinemas now uh float like a, a butterfly uh, two of the best performances I've seen in Irish film in a very long time uh Hazel Dupe and Dara Devani uh just did incredible work in this film um film about uh travelers in in a uh, traveler girl in the 1970s who adores Muhammad Ali uh check out the trailer go see it i think it's in IFI in Dublin Lighthouse and uh down in Cork around the country uh check it out if you can go see it do uh as always please um help and support the show by sharing it if you think someone would like this episode send it on uh like share review all that stuff is really really helpful to us and if you want to go a little bit further and uh throw a few quid our way you can go to buy me a coffee forward slash film network ireland uh any help is really appreciated so yeah uh, this is a really good one. Uh, excited to see what people get from this one. Uh, she's very inspiring. This is Carmel Winters. Thanks so much for coming into the studio. Much appreciated. Thank you, Paul. I'm actually delighted at the opportunity to talk to you and other filmmakers about the whole process. Cool. Yeah, we we were just saying we actually met many years ago down at the Offline Film Festival in Burr. Uh, yeah, it actually meant a lot to me at the time because I had just gotten back into making films. I was living in Dubai for a while and... Uh, I saw your screening of Snap and your, your Q&A was just incredible, very powerful afterwards. And then we just happened to be staying in the B- same B&B and uh, we had a great chat at breakfast time and you were very encouraging and uh, like you were listening to my ideas and it, it meant a lot to me at the time. So uh, oh, thanks for that. That's a gift for me to hear. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so with a film, with uh, Float Like a Butterfly, you're just about to, it's just about to be rolled out. Films take so long to make. How does it feel at this stage now, having gone through the whole process? Is it is it surreal, or is that was that moment Toronto? Was it the first screening, or what does it feel now when you're actually getting when it's about to be seen by audiences across the country? It's fascinating because the word release is beginning to make complete sense to me, um, and it's very like it's very like the prep and the shoot like I find probably the toughest part of filmmaking prep to be prep you know that late stage um, near enough to the you know about two weeks out from the shoot when all the team aren't on yet and I'm talking even now you know immediately we're talking about lower budget when I say that because on a larger budget of course you're all up and running 
Um, but when you're so close to the shoot, but your team aren't assembled yet. Yeah. So you're heading into a bottleneck of needing to get so much done, but your people aren't there yet. So that's an incredibly tough time. And, it, and I think the minute I start shooting, there's a relief. Right. And a release of energy. Yeah. And it feels the same with this in that I was surprised how... Um, I was surprised how much tension I felt about a week ago coming into this. Really? It reminded me a little bit of prep. Yeah. Like I was aware of so much that would need to be done to support the release. And we're in the hands of Eclipse, essentially two fantastic sisters, Claire and Siobhan. Yeah. But we're basically we're going through um, a kind of... Um, a la- th- theirs is a labour of love. We're not talking about the kind of cash that's thrown at a film you know, usually to make it a hit. Like yeah. the example that would be used is that Billy Elliot, in, in, when Billy Elliot was made, it was made for £2 million. Mm. Yeah. To put it out in England, £4 million was spent to market it. Right. Okay? Yeah. Now, the same with the likes of Once. Yeah. 100000 to make it, but millions yeah. to put it out there. Yeah. So coming up to this, I was going, oh, wow, we're going out there and all we've got is passion. Really, you know, now the film board did what they could by way of, you know, the grant you get to release a film. But I was just going, I could see I was going, oh, well, if we did have the money, you'd know well what you'd want to be happening. And you're trying to, just a few of you, trying to kind of match those actions. And it's very like prep, you know, you're aware of everything. That discrepancy between where you what you would like to be doing if all the resources were available to you. Yeah. And then just working with what you've got. And um, now I'm kind of breaking through to the similar state I get when it's the shoot where there's such, such a sense of impending relief rather than impending doom. Yeah. It's like, oh, great. It, it's very like the release to an audience. I'm always much happier once an audience is there. It's yeah. exactly like the cast. When I'm in front, you know, getting up in the morning, you know, I shoot like the intense pressures and I, I, I absolutely relax once I'm around the cast. Well, it's the same for me with the audience. Yeah. That's when I relax. Yeah. And it's like, because I'm almost taking care of them might be the wrong word, but there's something in me that trusts them. Yeah. It's, it's great relief when that happens. So, I feel much better than I did a week ago. Okay. And I'm, 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 um, we had a pre-screening, you know, on Tuesday and it was a massive weight off my shoulders when we went through that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the first audience, outside kind of festival audience. Yeah, it's it? really interesting. Now, we've had to kind of like, the likes of, we, our festival audiences, like Toronto was our premiere and Toronto is known by filmmakers to be an audience-led Festival. Right. Not all festivals are. Right. Lots of them are industry led. Okay. But you've got a very real audience in front of you in Toronto. Okay. So it's like John Madden, uh, who I mentioned just before we started, the director of lots of films like um, Shakespeare in Love, Captain Corelli's Mandolin's uh, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. He said, Oh, Carmel, like you love Toronto. Because I was, I was, you know, like uh, full of nervous apprehension going to Toronto. And he said, You've got a proper audience. And he said, that's very rare on the festival circuit. Yeah. Very often it could be, you know, a room full of people in the industry. Yeah. And I did not make this film for a room full of people from within the industry. Yeah. I just didn't. Yeah. It's so far from where this film um, lives yeah. and who it's kind of gifted to. But um, so 
Toronto, like you've all makes and sizes and within the course, like I had a chance of being there for, I mean, it was suggested I'd be there for the first two screenings. And I said, well, I was superstitious. I've got this thing about threes. I was saying, if I'm there for three screenings, I will know exactly how the film is functioning in terms of the audience it's pulling to itself. Yeah. By screening three, like we had fabulous screenings, but by screening three, I saw my audience and they were the audience I had in mind. I saw them, they were there and there was like just such a tide of feeling. And I've been amazed. Our very next festival was Busan in Korea. It's just, and they're film lovers again, not industry audience. And what was funny about Korea was very few people in the audience could speak English. And I was looking at subtitles and they'd subtitled everything. Like, I mean, every grunt. (laughs) <laughs> Tiny background noises and little snatches of um, dialogue that aren't discernible. I was going, what are they putting on the screen? Like I was just dying to know what the audience was uh, actually reading. Um, but there was a song in the end of the film that I had written to, because I'd been looking for a kind of anthem for girls right. and women and mothers in particular about the kind of inheritance of power through the female line. And because it didn't exist... I said, I'll write it, but I'll write it to make it sound like a film, a, a song that has existed forever. So co- quite just a bit of an earworm. Yeah. You know, like you go, you won't even. Anyway, like it's just something that you'll think you've heard already. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they were singing along to it. Now, they were singing along to it. So I leaned over because there, there was a fellow beside me and he didn't know who I was. And I chatted to him in English saying, oh, he's speaking. And he was like, oh, just speaking back in Corey and he didn't speak a word of English. But it's interesting, I've already, in other words, what I'm saying is I've been very lucky in that the early festival life for this film has kind of matched the regular mainstream conditions. And then in other ways, what's what's a bit tricky maybe in Ireland right now is that in terms of, I think, I think a lot about audience. Mm. It's just, I do from the very first stage of storytelling. Yeah. I am a storyteller, so the audience is already in front of me. It is very challenging for a film that's quite, we'll say, designed to be quite broad in its appeal to an audience to be rooted to an art house release. And that's the reality of it for Irish film in Ireland, unless there's a big star. Mm-hmm. So I would say to filmmakers, that's quite, and to people in the industry in Ireland, that's something we need to creatively get together and think about. Yeah. It's something we're always trying to push when we're and we're talking on the the podcast here. Is you know, uh, it's it's funny how it kind of tends to go to the back of the mind, or you know, I don't know yeah. why. But <laughs> yeah. I think maybe because we we keep putting pressure on the filmmaker to deliver everything, mm. but actually, a wide team of people need to deliver together. Yeah, the filmmaker cannot create the context as well as yeah. the film. Yeah, you know, and actually, I I I think the new appointment in the film board, I think it will be good. It, my sense is, I don't know, but my sense is Desiree will be attending to that. The yeah. crisis for independent film is so massive. Mm. It's so massive with the streaming. Yeah, you know, the cinemas are often empty. Yeah. Let's put, call a spade a spade. Yeah. If you're making something specifically for the big screen, you haven't got a big star in it. Yeah. And we all know, look, if you've got us, we all know, like, they say, oh, well, put a big star in it. Mm. Well, that doesn't just happen like that. Yeah. 
you know, big stars have agents protecting them from the likes of us. <laughs> you know, yeah. like going, oh, no, don't tempt them with a project where there's no money. Yeah. And it's six months or whatever. Yeah. yeah. No, no. They, they, you know, they're kind of rising up through the ranks and they have a team of people wanting them to keep making money for another team of people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, but we've, we've massive challenges. So, you know, with float like a butterfly. I remember when I made Snap, like, I, uh, I, I was kind of naive in the sense that I thought something could kind of, I think I'm always naive. I, I pretend that I learned a lesson. Yeah, yeah. But in a way, you've got to be naive to keep at it. Yeah. You know, there's a kind of naivety. And it's interesting because this was my first time working with almost a naive point of view at the heart of the film itself. And I was going, God, it's very functional when it comes to having the energy to really meet a, a challenge or a struggle, to still be naive enough to believe mm. that a better outcome is possible. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm, I've become naive again, thinking, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe word of mouth will just let this film pop. Yeah. Um, rather well, than two, messes a cash. Two very different animals though with snap and yeah to- very very different yeah can you see any parallels between them i was thinking about this actually mm. and you touched on it on the in the q a um the sense of healing mm-hmm. that's healing is very important in float like a butterfly especially the the dad mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. and there's a good few years since i saw snap but i think that is what i remember do you think is there something is that does that run through all your your work everything i've ever done right. i think it's so Kenny of you to basically spot that because I know the genre wise or feeling wise like um, apparently um, somebody said that on on Arena last night they were saying you would never think the same filmmaker made Snap and uh, and uh, Float Like a Butterfly and I was so glad to hear that but I know I might I know I'd probably spot myself that kind of very I have a huge commitment to making healing work Right. I really do. And yeah. I think because of the kind of sidelining of women in film, words like magic, healing, mm. loving, um, shamanism, yeah, they, those words have been kind of trivialized. Right. Yeah. But I was like, what better reason to get up in the morning yeah. but to do something that could be healing? Yeah. I mean, um, and it doesn't, especially with the goal though in this one was that it would be successfully disguised as a very entertaining movie. Yeah. Because I was going, it won't reach the people who most want it and need it. Yeah. Otherwise. Yeah. It just won't. And I was going, it won't reach, I was going, there's there's a huge value in an intergenerational audience for this film that in itself will be healing. In Korea, first screening, there were loads of women there. Second screening, I couldn't believe the amount I recognised who came back wow. with their fathers. Wow. That really? was fascinating. Like, I was going, whoa. And, I'd, <laughs> and going into it, I had a huge thing about, like, I'm in some ways kind of unlucky that all of my creative intentions tend to be in, in remarkably conscious. So I, I would specifically think, oh, I'd like to see people come back with family members. Yeah. I'd like that to happen with this film. For, and you'll know why when you see the film. And um, the very first screening in Toronto, a man came up to me and he said, and he was, you know, giving me the hug and thanking me. And he was like, 
And he just burst out crying. He said, my mother was alive. This is exactly the kind of film I would have wanted to see with her. And I knew why he was saying it. It was like he'd have been able to honour his mother by being there with her. Now I could guess that they'd been through some struggles and some suffering together. I I would be guessing, you know what I mean? People are looking you in the eyes and you're gleaning things and it's not being said. But but those kind of intentions, um, they at least give me an independent way of assessing when I'm in a room with an audience, the one thing I never, never, never want to feel is when they lose interest and get bored. Yeah. I have one little moment in Snap where every single time I watch it, for a couple of seconds, I, 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 I zone out. Yeah. And I go, oh, definitely. It's about, it might only be like three seconds, but that's a long time in terms of a cut. I was like, how did I not spot that yeah. at the time? Yeah, yeah. And it happens every time I watch it. Really? I've never, you know, like, I go, well, you know, and you know, you work so hard for every second on yeah. a film. You don't want to leave anything in the cut where yeah. that's happening. Yeah. You know? Uh, absolutely. Because um, that was going to be the next part of my question, actually. Is there, because you do other writing work as well. What is it about film? Is there something particular about film that is such a good medium to explore those kind of themes? Well, you know, see, I absolutely adore photography. Yeah. I'm always out with the camera. Like, it's a form of meditation for me. Yeah. I'm a bit of a scopophiliac. Like, right. my partner's always warning me. She's saying, like, do you realise you're standing, staring with your mouth open? <laughs> you know, like, oops, yeah. I'll try and close my mouth. So, <laughs> yeah. but like, um, I'm, I am a, I'm a watcher. Like, yeah. the amount of pleasure I get from watching life is yeah. just, it's endless, really. Yeah. So, I'm a watcher and I adore so many different art forms. So film is the one art form that calls on all the art forms. The art of the image, the art of sound, the art of humanity, really. Like, so even though I do love theatre because I love the live condition of it. Yeah. I love the live condition of it. There is something more democratic, really, Mm. about film in the sense as well that, like, a lot of the kind of people, the background I'm from, very few people I knew, I, I knew growing up had ever set foot in a theatre. Yeah. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I know, yeah. So I'm going, right, you just won't reach certain people through a theatre. Yeah. But ultimately the work, the chance to work with such a team of different artists, like that's where the real, with, with Float Like a Butterfly, I had to lean into so, it, it's very ambitious in, in, in design and music. Those two areas are massively um, stretched like I would say we were definitely I was definitely trying to make a much bigger budget film on a mm. small budget but I yeah. said I might never get that budget so yeah. I want to take that stretch yeah. and like say 10 years ago uh, form like I just got interested in what we'd call chaos has has huge is hugely fascinating to me at the moment you know like uh, just that line before things fall apart where maximum humanity is released maximum energy yeah um so it, it kind of i think it's very helpful to be able to work through music in particular when you want to capture the pulse of things yeah music and sound yeah so um yeah i mean the composer on this film like has won an oscar and, and and going into this, I'd say this to any fil- filmmaker watching, quite a few, when I said, su- when I suggested him, like a couple of people were saying, sure, we've no chance of getting to him, like. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was going, sure, why don't we let him decide? Yeah. And I'd say that to anybody, you know, 
if you've any chance now, I was lucky in that um, John Madden, who had mentored me for a, num- a, a while, a number of years ago, was able to make kind of a, a recommendation or I was able to say, look, to Stephen Warbeck, I was able to say, John thinks you and I would get on great. And actually it was John suggested Stephen to me. Yeah. I had asked him about another composer as well. Yeah. And he'd said, oh, I know what you're up to. I've <laughs> read the film. Stephen and you will be perfect together. Really? And he was such a great director. Yeah. And, you know, actually I reached out to loads of directors before I made this film. And I'll tell you this much. I learned how generous so many, especially TV directors in Ireland. Because TV directors get a chance to essentially make work, more work and limber up and exercise themselves a lot more often yeah. than the feature directors. Yeah. So they've so much of so much experience working with cast, working with crew. Yeah. I reached out to so many different people and they were so kind. They got yeah. on the phone straight away, told me what it was like working with a certain person or just really um Darvla Walsh when I was going through a really tough time, I said, I'll ring Darvla. Yeah. And she was super busy prepping on a film, got straight back to me and really supported me. Yeah. I, and she scarcely knew me. Yeah. But yeah. I, I dug in there to the community. Yeah. And because uh, and I live in the middle of nowhere, I know very few other filmmakers intimately. Yeah. Which is a, is a kind of a, a a deficit, really. You do need each other. That's what I was going to ask you. But sometimes, in some ways, I'm really jealous of you there. And most beautiful part of the, one of the most beautiful parts of the world and uh, you that helps in having which are such a distinctive voice and that and you, it's great to have filmmakers from outside of the bubble here but do you find that you, like what are the deficits for you or have you learned mm. how to make try and make the most of it <laughs> do you know like I'm just I adore nature so much that it feeds my bones and it also keeps me all quite childlike almost in my excitement about then meeting talent and meeting other people and yeah. well actually people because I'll go through a day where I'll see animals and plants but you know I might only have met one person yeah. um, keeps me excited that is definitely a huge part of it and I am meeting I'm not operating inside a narrow consensus I mean, like the people I spend most of my time with have vastly different life values to me. Yeah. Now, um, and like, for instance, a neighbour of mine, says, when he discovered that I was a filmmaker and a playwright, because they wouldn't have known, like the neighbours initially wouldn't have known. They were like, waste her walking around what, with her dogs every day. Like, huh, you know. And uh, so when he discovered, he said, is there, huh. And he kind of, the nose was, if you know, the nostrils were flared in what we'll call a look of, near contempt and he says is there much call for that like, <laughs> and I said ah oh, no no hardly any at all and and a friend of mine who's a novelist said like I'd have been outraged if he asked me that I'd have said is there much call for whatever he did and I won't say it so we want to identify him because I'm sure now he's I think people have a right to kind of not know something and to learn and he's learned since yeah. but I decided to take it at face value and the truth is yeah Living down there, if I stopped really rattling the can, as it were, for support, I doubt anyone would have noticed. To be to be yeah. quite kind of pragmatic about it. Yeah. When you're that far away from things, yeah, people do forget. Yeah. There's such a short memory in this industry. Like mm. when you go casting, mm. typically the people who are suggested to you are the people who have been in something in the last six months. 
Yeah. People are forgotten about so quickly. Yeah. It's a kind of like, in our culture generally, there's this kind of disposable swipe mentality. Yeah. Swipe, swipe, in, out, you know. Yeah. And I would say it has been career sabotage to live where I live. Right. I would say I would have got where I would have, I would have, I am guessing I would have more films under my belt. Right. I would have to because yeah. I am dedicated and I know I'm doing what I'm good at. Like, yeah. you know, I know that. Yeah. And and I love talent and I love being around talent. But I think, I think it's a very, where I live now, the kind of filmmakers that live there are people with second homes who have a house in New mm. York, a house in LA, yeah. a house in, um, and then a house in London and a house in West Cork. And they spend about two weeks of the year there. Yeah. And I'm there all year round. Yeah. But I do love my yeah. life. Yeah. Well, is there anything you could have done differently? That you've, yeah. yeah, there's loads I could do differently. But, you know, I'm stubborn and I seem to be dedicated to making things hard for myself. <laughs> but, like, you know, just getting up to Dublin or London yeah. or L.A. Yeah. Just getting up to those places. Yeah. You know, get and now I do think, though, in terms of what other people could do, to support people living outside the little bubble, mm. which I do think we need our stories to come from outside. Yeah. Like the outsider has so much to give in every walk of life. Yeah. You stop, once you look from outside, you see a lot more. But I think, you know, like if 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 the industry decided to provide kind of like little bolt hole, very simple accommodation in, in, in LA yeah. for a writer or a director to be able to stay there, mm. you know, a week, a year, whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. I think there are very basic supports that would help that because, of course, you get into a little bit of a trap when you live outside of the city. You can live on very little compared to the city. Yeah. And then you can't, it's tricky affording getting to the city and all yeah. the rest. So those are kind of challenges. But I certainly could have done a lot more. But there's something about me, like when I leave home, I'm delighted. And I'm going, what, why, didn't, why didn't I do this long ago? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I kind of get, I get in, I get lost in the natural world where yeah. I live, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't think you could have a film like feel like a butterfly if you weren't immersed in that world would that be fair I don't know I mean people manage it I mean yeah. people manage it but I suppose I I don't know you can't compare the life you lived with the life you haven't lived because it's a false comparison yeah yeah Do you know you, it's just not possible every time I think about it I go like well maybe I avoided some other maybe I'd have become someone who was so smug and satisfied with my little kind of um bubble of fame or something in a certain circle yeah. but it was interesting because coming up to this like you know with the, you're kind of thinking like oh you know with this release it would be helpful if there were if you knew plenty of people who know plenty of people and mm. I realised wow well, I don't know many people yeah yeah I was going <laughs> amazing I'd say it, it was unusual yeah given yeah. the amount of work I've done how f- few people I do know right yeah. Um, and then in a business that's always in an industry that's all about it is all about who you know it is all about relationships Mm. I suppose the thing I would say though is that just to have the relationships with people that you really really trust um and you and you can support each other um and the more I support other filmmakers it makes me feel a lot better because this kind of work there's so much struggle involved you can end up being quite self-absorbed or narcissistic. Yeah. Uh, and that's an awful pitfall, like. Yeah. You know, so the more I'm, the more I can kind of champion other people. Yeah. 
that's another thing that's great to get out of the house and do. Yeah. See work and just like so, like when I saw the little comrade in an Estonian film made by this woman, Monique Simmets, I was just, I was over, I, I think that was Korea at a film festival. And I just got on the internet and told everyone I knew who could do anything for that film about it. I was going, this is what it should be, is us championing each other and not yeah. championing ourselves. Yeah. That's much healthier. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, you might just tell me about the process that led to Snap, because it's quite an unconventional route to film. Yeah. Uh, and I found that quite fascinating. Yeah, it was in, that was with Snap. I'd been writing quite I'd been screenwriting really very intensively okay. and I was obeying all the rules show don't tell and it was they were always very cinematic and the odd thing was so I went to these workshops that were set up at the time towards geared towards the catalyst project to delivering a film within a very small budget and I was thinking of ideas for that and uh, I had just done a one woman show um, a, not a full production a workshop kind of reading of it okay. in Norwich where I was teaching at the time, creative writing. And uh, I remember that was like massively, there was huge emotion from the audience about that play. Right. And a lot of the men in particular and older men like, oh my God, it would break your heart looking into their eyes. Like there was just so much pain there. Um, and they were like really asking me to put it out there in the world, really, really asking me. Right. So I thought, oh, I wonder, could that be a film? But it was really the opposite of everything you would think of a film would be. It was so theatrical. It was yeah. essentially a monologue yeah. intercut with a real situation with an imaginary two-year-old. Okay. So I, I was going, oh. So I started with the most unlikely film I'd ever started with. And then I found unusual ways of delivering it as a film. Yeah. And uh, I didn't get the Catalyst Award, but actually I got a better budget after it, you know. But it was designed to live and to strive with a kind of austerity aesthetic. Mm. The very opposite. That's where Float and Snapper, opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Austeri- it's more, it's more um, lusciousness and austerity as aesthetics. I love both. Yeah. It just depends on what they're dedicated to, how yeah. they serve a story. But... Um, yeah, I I I got to investigate. It was all in a way it landed then on scopophilia, the kind of oh, scope of. I am a bit of a scopophiliac. It's kind of being obsessed with looking. Yeah. Now I'm not the voyeur. I won't be peeking through your window <laughs> at night. Although I'm amazed someone hasn't made a film yet based on. Do you remember the guy that was? Um, he fancies himself as a McKinsey character, a kind of sexu- sex sex. Uh, researcher, he okay. was a voyeur from a young age when he saw his aunt having sex when he was a young fella, and um, peeking through a window he saw her, and then he 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 bought these B and B's motels oh, yeah, basically, I saw that. Yeah, and he, yeah, the yeah. whole member in the seat in the yeah. air conditioning, yeah, and he was peeking through the attic above, yeah, yeah, at, yeah. and watching couples over years and yeah. years. Amazing film, yeah, yeah. That was a, that was extraordinary, but yeah. there was some kind of energy of like in Snap. Like um, it was where looking had that cruel aspect to it mm. or a kind of a a vampirish or a, a want in it. Um, and that's how I kind of discovered its life as a film. I wouldn't have shoved the square peg into a round, pole, uh, round hole until I saw that one aspect that's yeah. 
really lives for film. Right. Um, so that was that's that's what went on with that one. Yeah, and you, yeah, because there was um, a real element of confessional there because there was yeah, uh, you yeah. used home video and phones and that kind yeah. of kind of er, when it was early days of that kind of thing. Being yeah, used. it's interesting because that was yeah, you know now it's so current. Mm. At the time, it was just a way of creating dynamic. Yeah. Now, I don't mean just, but dynamic, visual, dynamic. So I was kind of, I think of shape always when I'm making something. Like shape, uh, uh, it's architectural for me. It, like a, a film is pure architecture. Yeah. So I was seeing the direct line between the main character, Sandra, and the camera being kind of a, a big diagonal cutting across that with yeah. uh, real live action from two years before. So it was the juxtaposition of those two that created the drama, the life force. Yeah. One or other on its own, I, less so. And then I suppose I was using the technologies of seeing, you know, the various, you know, the the uh, old footage um, from the family archive and then the fo- phones and uh, computer and all the rest of it and CCTV. But really they were just expressions of people essentially that film deals with a a character with a blind spot and it's like there's all these forms of seeing but none of them make up for the blind spot so what's it's an effort to see that isn't successful right so it's almost like you know kind of addiction based or obsession based yeah you're scratching an itch but you can't get it yeah the memory that's being kind of reached for is just out of uh, just out of touch you can't touch it yeah but but then the looking is searching, seeking, you know? Yeah. And what was the journey then from Snap to Float? Well, initially, directly after Snap, I was really, really keen to make this comedy. Yeah. Uh, called, um, I had a various names for it, but this... Um, it wasn't this... Oh, anyway, look. I, I Anyway, this particular comedy set in rural Ireland and very much based on kind of the clowning, the chaplain, the Laurel and Hardy, the Buster Keaton kind of style. And honestly, people just couldn't get their heads around the director of Snap making something like that. Right. Now, if they'd known all of my theatre work, they'd have probably spotted, look, that's in her DNA every bit as much as a film like Snap, if not more so. Yeah. Right, but they had they don't know it. The two worlds are so divided here in Ireland generally. Yeah. yeah. Theatre and film. Like True, I'm yeah. I'm amazed at how divided they are. Yeah. It, I I'm a, a <laughs> an offender there. I'm not I wouldn't be as familiar with uh theatre well, I haven't seen any of your plays. <laughs> you, know? you don't have to be. I mean, you know, there's no crime in that. There's yeah. none whatsoever. But I think in terms of I think it's very useful if um people who are making this decisions to fund work Mm -hmm. keep a close eye on storytellers yeah right i i do think we're a small enough country to be tracking talent yeah um and uh, i would like i think we don't do quite well enough there yeah that's my own impression yeah i go gee the size of this country and 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 there's a i think what happens i'm only kind of groping to discern this lately but i'm beginning to think that we Make the assumption we already know what someone is, who they are, yeah. what they're about, and we actually don't. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, maybe you've seen their Facebook or mm. Twitter, mm. Uh, actually, or you've heard a rumour or you heard someone talk about something. And we've kind of, uh, oh, I know that, but we don't know. Yeah. And I'm all, lately, my biggest thing is, wouldn't it be wonderful to all of us, for all of us to reclaim the right to not know? Yeah. It's so valuable. Yeah. It yeah. just means there's a chance then we'll start communicating. Yeah. We'll start looking at each other, mm. listening to each other, mm. paying attention. And also we'll relieve people of this ridiculous guilt around not knowing something, not knowing everything. Poli- and I have a bit of a bugbear about this one. I might as well lash into it. But like this political correctness, mm. this is deeply related to film storytelling. Okay. So it's now it's beginning to shape what stories are being told and how they're being told. Political correctness, I would say, originated from fantastic roots. Yeah. Um, it came about from a genuine want to to love, to be respectful towards each other. Yeah. But it has gone, it is, it has been hijacked. And I believe it has been consciously hijacked by interests that now make sure that actually human communication is stopped up by embarrassment about saying the uh, wrong thing yeah. or like, you know, that this Within, with social media now, John Ronson does a brilliant podcast about public shaming. And he's saying social media is now functioning the way stoning did in the past. <laughs> yeah. And with, I see it a mile away. In yeah. film and theatre, there's an assumption that the artist is the kind of cultural, ethical uh, police person. Mm. Marshalling reality for the, you know, great unwashed masses, the unknowing audience. I think that's absolutely destroying yeah. what we should be about yeah. which is the art of communication yeah. and for the art of the communication to live we must must feel more than okay about not knowing I mean everything I know gets reviewed so regularly in light of what I then learn yeah. and I go well if I'm you know if I'm Faking knowing I can't learn. If I'm just, you know, using the right language, yeah. that's so thin. Yeah. Instead of justice, I mean, I think justice and real connection with each other is the goal. Yeah. Not being seen to kind of use the right words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very undemocratic. Yeah. That actually punishes exactly the wrong people. Yeah. I think you're dead right. I think... It kind of comes back to the th- that thing of pigeonholing someone. It's like we do it with everyone. If you said that yeah. one thing once, that's what you are. Or yeah. if you made that f- type of film, that's what you are. Even yeah. you see it, in, even you're saying theatre and f- film. It's even within film, there is that kind of divide with documentary and film. Yeah. And uh, like it, we're all storytellers. That's it. And television and film. It makes no sense to me. Yeah. Like, you know, like Nasa Hardiman and Darvla Walsh are operating and like, it's such a high level in terms of their creative, uh, their creative, their craft. Mm. And I'm going, in the feature world, you'd swear they didn't exist in Ireland. You know what I mean? It's yeah. insane. We're a small country. Yeah. We're not paying attention to each other. Yeah. And I mean, the art of film is the art of paying attention. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, we better get practising. Now, I don't mean to be bashing Ireland because I actually love Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it is 
wonderful how many curious people are, you know, are out there, mm. do you know, like noticing what's around them and who's around them. But uh, I'd love to see, I'd love for us just to all reclaim the right to not know. Yeah. And to make mistakes. Yeah. If you don't want to make mistakes, don't get out of bed. And particularly a filmmaker, you're going to live with your mistakes. They're going to be on the screen forevermore. It's inevitable. Yeah. Like even the films, like say some of the, my favourite work of all time, like most recently would be Nadine Labaki's Capernaum. Oh, yeah. Capernaum. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, my God. I was just, I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, oh, I'm thrilled when I see something fantastic, that something to aspire to. I'm actually never happier than when I'm kind of in the presence of a talent, you know, that's just, that's ahead of mine. Yeah. It gives me something to yeah. reach for. Yeah. When I saw that, I was just blown away. But like, there's parts of that film that I'm not as, the latter part to that film, I don't think is as strong as everything up to it. Mm. But that takes away nothing from it. Yeah, yeah. I mean nothing. For me, it's like, and one of my favourite novels of all time, Fugitive Pieces by Anne Michaels. Anne Michaels. Um, I, I, uh, the very last third, I wasn't as absolutely enthralled and enchanted. Mm. Didn't matter. Because yeah. what had come before has given me nourishment for life. Yeah. And I go like, so I'm no lover of perfectionism. I think it's deadly. Yeah. It'll stop you getting out of bed. Yeah. Because it's just not human, is it? Yeah. Um, could you talk about character? Because I get this mm -hmm. sense that you, you're you one of these writers that really loves your characters. Yeah. The trickiest thing for me with feature film is I could I could actually make every single character the main character. Right. That's probably my biggest challenge mm. is how to do justice. Just, you know, and, and really it's, oh my God, I feel like, oh, it's like having... A low, having like a, I'm one of 12 children. Right. But if I was the mother of 12 children and knowing that each one of those 12 children have these exceptional qualities and yet a feature film form is going to prioritise one yeah. or two or three. Yeah. And you know that every one of them deserves it. Yeah. And I let so many people into float. Like I, I would have, I could have given you a backstory for every single person you see on the screen, every extra. Really? Frankly, yeah, I could. Yeah. So, so when I have been casting the ch child extras, I hate the word extras because they did wagons of acting. Only yeah. their character doesn't have a name, or they don't have a line of dialogue. Mm -hmm. But they're doing so much acting. Yeah. But like, I, I, I suppose the humanity. What I try and do is, is um, in those situations, I try and make sure that their character comes true at a glance, and then with the main characters. I'm living with them and trying to be led by them instead of controlling them um, and, and trying to keep them alive over the course. The, the process of development is tough on character because mm. you have people, it, it, the, the script at that stage is a commodity for other people and it's like a plant or uh, an animal or yeah. a child for you. It is alive. Yeah. So there's certain things you can't do to it without killing it. Mm. So and one of, and that and chief in that is character. Like they must be treated as real. Yeah. And um, so I try and let them uh, almost hide some of what they have to give me until very late in late in the process. Right. So that they stay alive for me. Yeah. Um, and they 
they would rarely come separate to the story. Mm. They already are the story. It's kind of unfurling the story that's inside them. Yeah. Um, so, and with theatre, it's pretty, the character might be more la- language based, although it's interesting because at first how Float came about was the character, Francis, essentially set up a bit of a monologue in my head. So I did have very strong uh, sense of her rhythms of speech, but then I took all of that out of the film. So I essentially made a character who spoke and kept talking to me and canvassing me to write her story and to make her story as a film. I ironically, once, def- I, once I could translate that into images, she showed herself actually to be a very quiet person. Yeah. Because I said like, well, you know, there's certain, it's a bit like Katie Taylor. If you notice the documentary that Ross Whitaker made about her, mm. she's not a talker. It's yeah. no wonder she's a fighter. Yeah. And it's not like she has like volcanic rage inside her. Yeah. It's more that there's an incredible physical intelligence mm. that has to out through the body. Yeah. And through a physical encounter with another person. Mm. And I kind of think in, in Float Like a Butterfly, when you look at Francis, you think, Jesus, neither her nor her father can communicate, can access what they need to access through words. And where they were really connected was physically when they were young. But when she, so when they're separated, she was eight when he went, was taken off to jail. She's 15 when he comes out and she was 15 when she was playing the role as well. It's a fantastic age. Mm. It's really kind of full of potency. Mm. But like what was interesting to me as I was going, that's their biggest problem is their bodies have lost eight years of living together. Right. So now it would be kind of like there's this incredible gap that their bodies can cover. It's a bit like someone who's adopted meeting their birth mother for the first time. Those two bodies should have known each other and they don't. Yeah. And like that is very hard to cover, cover through talk. Mm. And I, I'm not surprised that violence erupt, erupts yeah. between Francis and her father. Yeah. I, it's a incredible journey to go on. And when you say that now, that kind of physicality, um, there's a lovely scene uh, in the wagon where... Uh, she gets into bed with the dad and yeah. it's just, it's not weird at all. <laughs> and, it's yeah. kind of, and it's kind of says a lot yeah. about how you kind of led to that, that kind of moment, you know, especially in this day and age, you know. It's lovely because it doesn't, that scene doesn't get talked about. There's an awful lot of their story. I suppose there are so many subtle shades to it. Mm. And I'm not demanding that the audience get all of them. Mm-hmm. I think the more you've lived, the more you will get. Yeah. But I do know that that scene is key to your understanding their relationship yeah. and that like there's a desperate want to be tender and close together again. Yeah. It's just and it's like, ooh, at that age, it's on the edge of dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. But actually what I wanted the audience to see is like, no, there's nothing exploitative here. It's very tender. Yeah. And um, you obviously, in I think your casting was incredibly good. Um, did you know straight away, or do you have a process like? Because it's, I find casting myself, it's it's always a little bit of a shot in the dark because someone can do an amazing audition. How do you kind of try and 
prepare yourself as well as you can. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm led by my nose largely. Yeah. I mean, but I would have done everything and anything to cast this film. I went through actually three different casting directors were involved. And then as we proceeded, I kind of cast myself. Now, Louise Keeley introduced me to Hazel mm. early on. Yeah. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Um, but she, Hazel was very, she was actually too young for the role when I met her first. And I was like, dang. Because yeah. I honestly, honestly thought she was the most extraordinary actor yeah. I'd ever met in an audition. She, uh, she's so good that I was considering casting her for something and I was, she was the wrong age, but I was going to, I could rewrite for yeah. her, you know. I, I thought of that too. And I was kind of, that was an option. Yeah. But if I cast someone, you've seen the film now, so yeah. you know. You know when the father starts making a match for her and you mm. know the fighting scenes. Mm. If that was a 13 year old. Yeah. That's a child. Yeah. A 15 year old. And um, some people think she's older, but she was 15. She's playing 15. Yeah. The cusp of womanhood was exactly where the film needed to be. Mm. It's right. It's that potent place between girlhood and womanhood. Mm. And I would have been doing a massive disservice to the film if I had cast too young for that. Yeah. And that's always a killer. Because I remember when I was doing Snap, this young fella came into an audition yeah. and he had a massive bruise on his face. I don't know how he found his way to that audition. Amy Rohn had put the word out wide. Like yeah. he certainly hadn't come up to a, an acting school. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I will never, never forget his audition. Really? I will never forget it. I felt so privileged as a human being to witness what he was prepared to show me. He'd obviously lived such a life, the level of emotional intelligence. Mm. I think the more you've lived, the more like, oh my God, he could, oh, broke my heart watching him. Yeah. And I remember at the time going, he, he definitely couldn't have played kind of middle class. Yeah. And, and I, I still, you know, I thought, oh, if I make the character working class, I get very close to kind of very, you know, the which he the character had been in the play. I said, mm. if I make the character working class, it's the usual thing of kind of feeding the myth that only working class kids get sexually abused mm. by their families. Yeah. And I went, geez, that's a big deal when it comes to film theatre. Yeah. You can stay in narrow gauge actually more. Yeah. Film, it's like going, I was a, it was a real ethical, creative dilemma. Yeah. You know, I remember that. And then he disappeared. And I've never been able to track him since. But I, I think back to that and I go like, wow, there's such a balancing act between all the things an audience brings in their demand of a film and that you have to communicate with as a director. Um, that... Yeah, rewriting for talent is always an option if you're the writer as well. But you'd want to think carefully about it. Like, and then I kept searching and I found Stephen Morn. Yeah. And it changed the film massively. Um, and I actually think it made it more austere again. Right. Because I think we can forgive underdogs easily more yeah. easily yeah than we can someone who doesn't appear to be an underdog 
and made it more austere again and uh, he brought such different qualities. It would have been a different film. Yeah. And But I can, I am glad I made the film I made. Right. Yeah. But you'll always think back when you're yeah, casting, yeah. I think you think yeah. of like, the truth is, like there's the myth that there's only a couple of great people out there. Oh my God. Yeah. The amount of fantastic people out there. Yeah. It's just, it kills you, you know. You, I would stay awake at night going, how can I get this person into the film? And I'm going, I can't find a place for them. Yeah. And I go, oh, maybe the next one. I hope someone gives me a chance to make a TV drama so I can involve more people. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You you do, I think actors would be surprised at maybe to know that maybe they'll have gone into an audition, not got the part. They'd be amazed to know how much the director might think about them afterwards. Yeah. And think about the audition as maybe one of the finest moments they'd ever seen. And yet that actor goes away thinking they failed. Yeah. And, you know, to have that kind of moment and not cast that person. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you, you'll yeah. be kicking yourself. Yeah, like, yeah. Do you know, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts them, of course. Yeah. But it also hurts you. But, yeah, there's no wasted audition from a director's point of view. Like, I, I always try and say that to actors because we, we know we all face a lot of rejection and it, uh, as a director, you often try and say, "Oh, it's not personal." Of course, it's personal. Yeah, <laughs> it always feels personal. Yeah, but you never know what has gone into that director's head for another project. You know. Well, it's interesting because when I was auditioning for this film through the usual channels, I asked that um, Louise Keeley was helping me at this stage, and I asked that actors be paid. Like I said, there's a certain number of actors now I'm really interested in. Yeah. I'd like them to come to a day workshop together where they're auditioning together in front of each other. Now, but we're not doing it like you get up and you know, show us your stuff. It's workshop based. Yeah. There's singing, there's boxing, there's improvising. There's all sorts of structures where I'll set up a scene, I'll take someone out, you replace the actor. You know, it was really, really properly structured and quite, I thought... Um, a real invitation to actors to be fully cognizant of what's going on, not just for them, but for me, so we can share. Like, they see my process in action of selection. Now, I remember that being deemed to be one actress I know very well, a friend of mine said to me, but that's only in your interest, Carmel. Mm. What's in that for the actors? And I said... I couldn't disagree with you more. Yeah. I can't see anything in it for an actor when they queue uh, outside a hotel room in a corridor, like they're going in for a doctor's appointment, give their five minutes after preparing all day the day before or that night or whatever yeah. it is, and I have a clue what's going on in the director's head Yeah. and popping out and that mortified kind of moment of seeing all your peers outside. I was like, Do it, I, I said, of course it's hugely valuable to me. But it's massively valuable. Actors learn far more from each other than they'll ever learn from you. Yeah. And if they see me preferring certain choices, I think one of the things, the awful things about like being an actor is you go in and you make some bold choices and you hope the director will recognise if you can make those bold choices, you can make other bold choices. Yeah. But very often, I think people just hang, it, hang their judgement on, oh, you made those choices. Mm. But you see, I suppose what I love absolutely most in actors is their interpretive skill. Mm. I I love that. Like I'm not, I'm not interested in a puppeteering style of direction. Yeah. 
I like working with really strong independent artists yeah. who like excite me with their choices. Yeah. And now that day, I really do believe that um, I saw, not even a belief, I saw actors improve each other. Yeah. yeah. Like, I go, that's a dividend. Yeah. But I know it's an, a very exposing, vulnerable thing to do. Yeah. But theatre actors do it all the time. Mm. You know what I mean? They yeah. get in and they work together. Yeah. So I think we can borrow more from theatre processes mm. with film. Yeah. This kind of hidden little meeting with the director on your own, your five minutes or whatever it is. And now it is the self-tape. Yeah. Actually, in some ways, I think the self-tape is quite actor friendly because mm. you can decide what you send in. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's not all hinging on this one moment. Yeah. Which is more of a performance. Like a yeah. kind of a theatre type. That's not what you're looking for. Yeah. If, yeah. It's yeah. really interesting to self-take. Now, I think you can miss people as well. Mm. Like, um, I I think, well, I know you can miss people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. doubt I miss yeah. people. Yeah. I I just have to own up to that absolute fallibility. It, it does give actors a bit more... Uh, agency though in that it does. they can be actually be a little bit creative yeah 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 and absolutely take control yeah take control of the situation now it just means like Maureen Hughes is the first to say it to people I think it's very generous of her to say it to actors she says look what I can provide in in um at Bow Street you can be doing for each other in groups right. you know get together in groups like there's it is desperate if you're trying to do a self-tape mm. and you haven't kind of limbered up through doing Almost like dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Yeah. First, like yeah. dozens, mm. so that the first level of self consciousness is kind of dismantled or decommissioned to some extent. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Or just to worry about the filming and the. I mean, geez, it's tough. Like. Yeah. But I mean, uh, it's sad in a way that we're all going the route of, oh, cut out all the stages and cut out the costs and expenses. In a way, I kind of think, well, sure, look at if we're going the self route, taping route mm. the way we are. I would think it'd be great if a group of actors got together as a cooperative and um, brought out the best in each other with self-tapes and then set up their own website and acted almost as casting directors of themselves. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And take even more control. Yeah. Um, what's next for you? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I would... Oh, God, I'm. I've, there's so many things that I want to do because yeah. of... Being delayed so long making this, there's yeah. just a backlog. I want to make these physical comedies. I want to do a musical. Yeah. I want to make a big TV series about like the ins and outs of all the different families. I want to do a, a sumptuous big lesbian love story. <laughs> I, I want to do so much. Yeah. Um, but none of the infrastructure is in place by way of like support. Right. You know, for any of it. So I'm hoping to kind of get through those stages a lot, lot, lot quicker right. than I did with Float Like a Butterfly. Yeah. And do you have a plan? Do you have ideas on how you can do that? Capitalising uh, on what you've what, what you've done with Float? I should have better plans, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> if I was Kenny, I would have, uh, I'd be well along. Sure, the next one would be in the back pocket, but I'm, I'm, I'm very much a serial monogamist right. um, in yeah. my creative projects. But, yeah. Uh, and I suppose just because I've had to play so many roles with this one, but yeah. generally I'm concentrating on 
working with it'll be it's all about for me that first relationship with the producer that that has to be right for me okay i have to feel like martina now at certain stages in this process she really you know carried the torch yeah late in the day we'd been kind of Stuck at part financed and promised, promised a completion. And it was just lethal. I was clearing the decks, clearing the decks for nine months at a time to go filming. And then we wouldn't be. All right. And you can imagine how disastrous that is. Yeah. yeah. But she, she'd have kind of been like, geez, do I, do I let go now? And she really carried the torch. For me, it'll be down to, to that the project's in the right hands from the get go. Mm. And that means kind of someone I deeply trust and has the same love, and that almost I can fight for that person. Yeah. That that person inspires my loyalty, as yeah. well as them being loyal to me. Yeah. And uh, that's probably where the living down in West Cork is a bit even tricky, all right. <laughs> I might have to, you know, leave home yeah, yeah. more often. Yeah. <laughs> is there any bit of advice that uh, you would have given yourself, maybe whenever you were starting out on your kind of film journey? I'd say I would, well, when I look at like the kind of films that came out of Denmark that I absolutely love and the mm. relationships I think are the strongest relationships here in Ireland, the likes of Ken Wardrop and Andrew Friedman, it, they were formed very early on. Mm. Same with Ed Guiney and Lenny Abramson, mm. like those relationships go back to practically teenage years. Yeah. I think if you find your people early on, there's no comparison because yeah. there's something about how open you are then. I've noticed that, the you know, by the time people are in the business many decades, mm. they're just not open mm. to... It's a bit like a marriage. They're already married. Yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they're and just without, not into you. That, yeah, not that into you. <laughs> yeah, no, there's something... I, I kind of spot it. I go like, because we usually take these things personally. Yeah. So little of it is personal. It's kind of like going, oh, no, this the pattern is... They met their main collaborators, the ones they're really going to mm. give their heart to mm. early. Mm. I would say, see, see, I kind of stumbled into filmmaking. I didn't know any filmmakers. Yeah. So it wasn't on my horizon of expectation. I would say going to film school is not at all necessary for the art or craft. No. But vastly necessary for getting to know other people and to build those relationships. Mm. Like Ken and Andrew... Andrew was Ken's editor first. Isn't that an incredible basis to a producer-director relationship? Yeah, yeah. So I would say, like the Danish um, filmmakers, I would advise my young self to get making work with other people, to find my people. Mm. Find my people. Yeah. I can't, I, I'd love, I, I can't even imagine how things might have gone. Yeah. I mean, but you never know. I mean, I mean, maybe it would have been a terrible marriage, <laughs> you know, but yeah, no, it, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well, we better leave it there, but thanks so much. Thank you, Paul. It was Cheers. an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. That was absolutely lovely. I great. love talking to you. <laughs> I love
very welcome to the Alison Spittle Show advertisement with me, Alison Spittle. I'm a comedian and podcaster. I've been doing this podcast for the past two years and I love it. I've had past guests like Colin McGorman, Tara Flynn, Sophie Hagen, Deborah Francis White and future guests like Sharon Horgan. So please tune in to my podcast. You can find it on the Headstuff Podcast Network or wherever you can find podcasts, go for it. 